0: What are you waiting for? Welcome to This Is Not A Dress Rehearsal Podcast. Stop holding your breath, waiting for perfect conditions before you move through the world. Tune in for real stories of real people who understand the freedom to live well. Your host, Bonnie Sewell, is a veteran wealth manager with 12 grandchildren, helping clients over the last 30 years enjoy their wealth. You can listen to all podcasts at www.americancapitalplanning.com podcast, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Brenda Harrington is the founder of Adaptive Leadership Strategies. Brenda wanted to create a space for organizational leaders, their key talent, and teams to develop into the best version of themselves, to do their best work. She has established a place for people to learn how not to surrender who they are in exchange for what they do, but instead work with awareness of their values, strengths, challenges, and blind spots in order to establish the professional habits they need to be successful. Brenda completed leadership coaching certification at Georgetown University and maintains PCC certification with the International Coach Federation. She holds additional certifications for the Hogan Leadership Forecast, Hogan Assessment Systems, Global Mindset Inventory, Thunderbird School of Global Management, PXT Select, and Checkpoints 360 Survey from Wiley. Government Coaching, from CGC Partners slash ICF and Global Business from the National Association of Small Business International Trade Educators. Brenda is an alumna of Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, Pamplin College of Business, where she earned her MS, and Adelphi University, where she earned her BA. Welcome, Brenda. Hello, Bonnie. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I want to start off with a fundamental belief that we hold here on the podcast, and one of our whys for doing it is that we think sharing our real stories, we learn from each other, we get to know each other, and we bridge that distance between each other. Can you think of a story to share with our listeners about how you, Brenda, know that this, this life, this day is not a dress rehearsal?
2: Yeah. You know, I reflected a lot on this, Bonnie, and it took me back to thinking about my aunt, Pat. My father was one of six siblings, and his sister, Patricia, was the youngest of the six. She started her career as a policewoman and ended up going back to law school as an adult and received her law degree and worked in the general counsel's office at Kodak. Unfortunately, she developed cancer, and she ended up passing away at the age of 48, I remember her always being very responsible, some would say frugal, and in as much as she was living into life, there were things that she put off. She'd say, you know, when i at 50, I'll take this great trip, and I'll get this car, and I'll do these things, and she never got to do any of that. And so really reflecting on that, that was probably the first time I, I got hit between the eyes with the fact that you need to do what it is you want to do. That was, that was about 1984. And that coincided actually with, with the year that I, I moved here to Virginia when I was with AT&T. And then I think that was reinforced about 12 and 14 years later when I lost my parents. You know, There are people who you feel will be in your life forever. And even though they're experiencing failing health and you're working with them through transitions and things like that, the actual impact of them no longer being here is profound. And so again, a reminder that you need to do what you want to do and not wait.
1: No time like the present. Well, Brenda, I like to Google my guests for fun. And did you know that the first thing that comes up on you is three scholarly articles cited by a lot of other people. And I'm curious, do you prefer writing or speaking more? Which one? And why are those skills so important in business?
2: So I wanted, you know, full disclosure, the majority of those articles, if not all, may be attributed to some folks at Harvard that have developed a a methodology around adaptive leadership, just happens to be the same name of, of the organization. I do, however, prefer speaking. And the reason is because it invites and requires engagement, it invites an exchange. You know, it's great to author something and and make your feelings known and, and put it out there, but I really thrive on that energy of response and exchange. And so speaking would be my preference.
1: And what would you say to someone who wants to be better at speaking or wants to get comfortable at speaking, but they have that proverbial fear of of being seen naked visually, you know, in terms of how they're heard and they get almost sick to their stomach before they speak. How did you get so comfortable speaking?
2: You know, I don't know that I am comfortable, but I have a higher risk tolerance than most. And, you know, I have come to learn that some of the, the fears or apprehension that I have you know, is shared by many other people. So what's the worst that could happen, really? And so if I, if I misspeak, if I mispronounce a word, sorry, I'll ask for forgiveness. So my advice is to just put your toe in the water and, and try, maybe take small bites. But I think that resisting it or pulling back from it really has more adverse impact on your opportunity to improve and get better.
1: I think that's a really smart way to look about uh, at it. You know, what's your downside risk? It's very little when you think about it, and uh, why not? So tell me about some of the detours or setbacks you've experienced in your long career.
2: So it's interesting. I don't often think of things as setbacks. I try to look at most things as as opportunities, and there's certainly been no shortage of detours. Please don't talk to anybody that knew me in 1980. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. I own it all. I own it all. But I'd have to say, if I had to think of a setback, it would have been around that time frame. My first job out of undergraduate school was with Mobile Oil Corporation. And I was in a unique position as a young person. I was used to things going well. I graduated from high school at 16. I graduated from college at 20. I had a pretty responsible position at IBM, as a matter of fact, throughout my undergraduate career, you know, where I was overseeing things that don't even exist anymore, like typing pool or whatever anyway, but nevertheless. And so I was trying to make a transition away from mobile. It wasn't quite the right fit for me, and I didn't know why. It's my first corporate experience, and I had been in a series of interviews with Exxon And we were all the way up to the last round and I had a verbal offer and I made the mistake of giving my notice to mobile before I had something in writing from Exxon. And I don't know what happened, the the players changed, the person or the people that I'd been interacting with at Exxon, maybe the, the boss came back or whatever, they took a different direction to this day, 40 years later, I don't know what happened. But they would call it ghosting now, I guess. Right. It just all went away. And there I was with school loans. I was living on my own. I had an apartment. I had a car note. I was I was an adult. Right. And I had no job. So that was a setback, certainly, because I had to defer some things and really pull in. But it was also a powerful lesson for me.
1: I feel like that's what most of the detours end up being, you know, when you finally get time to reflect on them. But in that vein, you worked for several big companies, as you say, and later you made the leap in 2011 to owning your own business. That's not a small leap. Tell me about that journey, that decision, and and why you think women in particular might do well to go out on their own.
2: So that wasn't my first leap. I did. Ultimately, Work for after the after the whole mobile incident, I ended up going to work for AT and and that's how I landed in Virginia. Actually, I was relocated to Virginia after the end of the breakup of the Bell System divestiture to open up new offices and things like that. And I knew after those two experiences that big corporate was just not going to be the place for me to spend, you know, the, the next thirty or forty years of my life. And so it was late 80s that I went out on my own and I started doing some things in relocation and destination services. And that carried me through the 90s toward the end of 90 to into 2000. And it was really around 9-11 that things changed. And I broke one of my own rules. I knew definitively at that point that I thrive in an environment where I could have more freedom. I try not to use the word control, but let's be honest. <laughs> but the reason for that and and one of the biggest frustrations that I had as part of a large corporation as being in a large corporation is that I never felt that we finished anything. I never felt that I was close enough to an outcome. You know, we would we would do all of this work and, you know, there'd be this rah, rah, and da, 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 and maybe something would happen, but it was so far removed from what I was doing. I just felt like I was on this hamster wheel and it, I just wasn't comfortable with that. And the other thing is that that really spoke to one of the things you'd point to in my bio, you know, just you give up so much of yourself to become part of this group, Right. And when that goes away, it's hard to to make a distinction between what it is you do and and who you are. So I felt like I I needed to bring those things together a little bit more. After 9-11, I joined an organization where I thought I would be there for maybe six or eight months, 10 months until things cleared. I left nine years later when I started Adaptive Leadership Strategies, having had just profoundly valuable operational experience And I left there as the senior executive. I was the executive vice president of the organization when I left. So I don't regret that at all, but it also really helped reinforce the fact that the best place for me to be is here because it's important for me to use my full brain. It's important for me to to really be able to be closer to the client and have more impact and influence on what's happening. So the last part of your question was,
1: How would you tell a young woman why it might be smart for her to think about going out on her own? Because I think everyone in corporate life has those dreams. Some are suited, some are not. But you did, and after a very successful corporate career, where sometimes people choose entrepreneurial because they haven't had success.
2: Yeah, yeah. Be clear about what you don't like. And I say it that way because I didn't always know where I was headed, but I knew that that wasn't it back there, okay? So- (laughs) Be clear and honest with yourself about what works for you and what doesn't. And a lot of times I hear young women, people in general, saying, you know, well, it could be worse. And, you know, they've got a good this. It's not dress rehearsal. okay? so if this isn't a fit, if this isn't working for you, then move forward, move on and find something else that will work better for you
1: and i heard that you know you moved a bit as you as you cha- made these changes and so forth but i'm sure you had other typical women centered zigzags in your in your life and a lot of young women that we talk to get frustrated early in their careers because they want to have a career but they are also juggling parenthood marriage uh, maybe caring for an elder or as i experienced and you seem to have experienced multiple moves which is another kind of disruption
2: yeah. It's only disruptive if you treat it that way. You know, I think that it's important to think about it in a way that's constructive and that you are able to see as part of life's journey. It's not going to be linear. Okay. I don't think it'd be any fun if it were linear if one thing led directly next to the next. You know, but in that I will say one of the most important things is to find the right partner. Find the right partner. And you know, I think back to dating days and how we chose people, how we were, what attracted us to people and things like that. And there are people that you you hang out with. There are people that you date. You know, there are people that you play sports with and there are people that you spend your life with and there's a difference, right? And so spend some time and be intentional about who it is you want to spend your life with and, and what's important to you in terms of values and priorities.
1: Yeah. So what I heard in that, that I think is so important and what we do talk about with young people all the time, choosing a partner is actually a financial decision into, in addition to every other kind of decision it is. But it sounds like with a supportive partner, these transitions that are going to show up, whether you're ready for them or not, can be supported with the right partner versus you've got to fight through
2: them with the wrong partner. Exactly. And it's not, you know, none of us has, a crystal ball, but it's about values. What's important? You know, what's most important? And when you're valuing material things and different things, you know, and all of that's fun, but it's fleeting. It's not. It doesn't inform longevity. So really, think about core values and what's important to you and what's important to some of the the people that you might be considering spending a period of your life with. Sometimes you can't articulate it but you have to notice and you have to pay attention to how a person shows up in different situations. Yeah.
1: Couldn't agree more. We always say when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Believe it. (laughs) it. (laughs) One focus of your company is occupational transitions. What are you seeing now and how are clients navigating what we've just come through and what we are going to be living with for some time?
2: You know, runs the gamut. Some people have adjusted well and they feel like they're in a position of being more productive, and they've been able to shift successfully. Other people are recognizing or realizing how much they rely on the energy of interacting with others in person and things like that. So it's been a real struggle for them. For people whose jobs have changed or who have been eliminated, you know, this is where I become concerned when a person defines themselves by what's on the card, right, or what, what it says on the door, and they don't really have a sense of who they are and what they want to do, and they, and they find themselves lost. It's like, it's like without a name, right? And so, yeah, this, is, this has been a period of deep reflection for a lot of people and a real reset on priorities. You know, I have to say there are a couple of people I'm really proud of who have really turned inward and, and focused more on family and just made the declaration that, you know, this is what's really important. You know, it's not, you know, the car and the vacation. The business. This, this really matters more to me than anything.
1: We're seeing the same thing in our families and almost I, I'm sure we're a small sample, but we are hearing people say that they've never had more fun in their family. And I think that gift of time is probably what's allowing that. I want to pull something back out of your bio because you really were just speaking to this, this idea of establishing a place for people to learn how not to surrender who they are in exchange for what they do. That is a trade that's maybe uniquely American. I don't know. It also probably is a lot male, but as a female business owner and a worker bee since, you know, a teenage, probably like yourself, it's hard to pull back that identity and figure out the whole human.
2: Yeah, it is. And I would agree with you, you know, probably two thirds of my clients right now are not Americans. And I do see a distinct difference in the way people, you know, approach their socialization and development and all these things. I ask the same question of most clients, and that is, if money had nothing to do with it, how would you spend your time? What do you most like doing? And I see people trying to fit themselves, you know, into these spaces where they have no business. <laughs> they just don't belong. And it doesn't mean, you know, quit your job and, and run off with the circus or anything like that, but it does mean to find a way to spend time with the things and the activities that serve you. And so if you're in a, in a very structured role that requires, you know, full engagement of the left side of your brain, but you have a creative streak, then you need to serve that what's going on on the right, that that thirst, that hunger, right? And so whether it's painting or playing in a band or doing something, find a creative outlet or find a way to be more creative in your work. And a lot of times people are just afraid to flex that way. But typically, in most cases, there is an opportunity to bring that forward.
1: That's exciting to think about. You and I share an interest in leadership and all that that entails. And it feels like in this moment, we're in a leadership void in all of our major systems, politics, law, markets, education. What What do you see as specific leadership challenges going forward? And I, I know that the time period we're talking in, that sounds like a loaded question. I'm really speaking to the idea of leadership.
2: Yeah. Credibility, character, trust. Really. And I think that there's there's such an absence of that everywhere we look, that in order to be a leader, people have to line up behind you, <laughs> right? And and so I think it's going to be a challenge to really build coalition right now, regardless of what's happening and who's out there, because we just don't know where to turn, you know, to hear the the same thing more than once.
1: Do you think, People mix up and overlay management and leadership when they are so different, in my mind, I'm sure yours.
2: All the time. I have a graphic that I use to kind of show the distinctions. You know, as you move up an organization, if you're an individual contributor, it's mostly tasks. And if you, in the management level, it's a combination of tasks and relationships. And as a leader, it's all relationships, really. And (laughs) I, I shared that with someone a few weeks ago, and they said, well, that's interesting the well, way you've got that laid out because I always thought leadership and management were the same thing. And so I think it is important to make that distinction, especially since in most organizations, in most environments, they're interch- not interchangeable, but you, you're doing all of those things. You just have to be clear on when you're showing up as a manager and when you need to show up as a leader you know, and when you're contributing.
1: Yeah, and I, I it feels like in execution, managers or actual leaders run the risk of not being taken seriously or seen as a leader if they're constantly diving back down to the management level. Absolutely. Love.
2: Get yeah. out of the weeds. Get out of the weeds.
1: Right. So what are your thoughts on the work you do and technology going forward? Because it seems to be disrupting so much. But how do you see it coming? And I actually look at it as a a wonderful thing, but I'm not naive. It can be a, a problem child as well. But how do you integrate technology into talking about leadership?
2: Yeah, I'm really grateful that I was somewhat prepared for this. I've been delivering virtual programs for the last six or seven years individually, the large cohorts globally. So it wasn't as much of a shock to my system as it has been to others. And we've actually done some work around helping people to apply tenets of emotional intelligence in a virtual environment and, and really approaching things differently. I think one of the challenges for people has been that they just kind of packed up and ran home and then continued to do what they'd always been doing. The reality is that you've got to design things differently and you've got to approach things differently in a virtual environment, but it but it can be done. One of the things I hear most often is that, you know, I could have a casual conversation with Bonnie on the way to the cafeteria, on the way to Metro, on the way to whatever, and that doesn't happen now. It takes me making the effort of an email. Are you available? Can you hop on Zoom? This kind of thing. So you just have to think about how to use the tools differently. The very big advantage I see is that you can cast a wider net. I've had a few circumstances where people have said, you know, they were concerned about conducting a, a meeting or, or convening a conference virtually because they didn't know how people would respond. And the reality is, it became so much more inclusive. I had one person say, you know, we usually have about 20 people, but because of the travel and da 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 da, they had over 200 people that were able to participate wow, right? It's a whole different event. So it really does hold a space for things that we might not have been able to do under different circumstances. And now that we can do things like breakout rooms and there are different ways for people to engage and interact, it still doesn't replace, you know, shaking a hand. But I think that if you use the technology properly, it can, it can be very valuable.
1: So we have found the same thing in our professional study groups, you know, it used to be local voices, and now we have voices from all over the country. And what an exciting difference that makes to see how people do things in different markets. So you're also talking to the idea of imagination. And imagination, we just hardly, I think sometimes play Though that word is introduced more into corporate conversations than imagination. But imagination feels like the right word. And you've been talking about that a little bit. How do you get someone who is clearly financially successful, check those boxes, but is really struggling to surrender who they are for what they do, how do you get them to think about imagination again?
2: Yeah. So in coaching, we use a lot of, there's a a methodological appreciative inquiry. We use a lot of questions and, and really getting them to think and speak into it by asking powerful questions just to get them to explore Sometimes we use visual goal setting exercises. So if you can imagine me asking a CFO to draw pictures of their current reality and what they desire, you know, and them looking at me like I'm crazy, but you know what really happens? They love it. I mean, they do pages and pages because they don't have this opportunity and it is like playtime for them, but it unlocks something that they have lost connection with or just perhaps we're never familiar with. And that starts a different conversation. So it's really exciting.
1: I bet that's really fun to watch too. It is, it is, yeah. Yeah. So switching gears a little, before we leave work, what do you love most about it? And what do you find most challenging?
2: What I love most is what I just described. Being part of those breakthroughs and just watching how people light up in response to just the slightest little shift and what it opens up for them, the possibilities. And they're coming back. This is somewhat self-serving, but, <laughs> but they're coming back and saying, you know, that really, I tried it and it worked and this is what happened. And, they, and just really that enthusiasm that's ignited in them. What I find most challenging is the organizations that will reach out to say, we need you to come in and fix Bonnie, you know, or she's having difficulty with this and she, she's doing this and she won't do that. I really try to avoid those circumstances most respectfully because if everybody is not on board with taking a constructive approach and really thinking of it from a developmental standpoint it's not going to work i also become concerned because people think of coaching and this type of intervention as sometimes as being punitive and it's not what a gift it is to be able to to develop these new skills and grow and build these new muscles so when when people are willing to invest ahead of time in someone as part of a succession plan to say, you know, in, in six months or a year, you know, the intention is for this person to step into this role. We want to prepare them. That's the best of all worlds. The challenge is when they're reaching back and trying to fix something or, you know, they want to put something in that's not there. Let's work with what the person has. We all have strengths. We just need to cultivate them. Okay. So that's that's really the biggest challenge.
1: And most of the time you're working with people who are in an existing position. Do you ever work with people, especially in this environment, because jobs are shifting so quickly? Do you ever work with people who have left a position are between positions and they don't want to relive what they just experienced when they go back in? Because this is what we're hearing from so many people. If I ever go back, it has to be different. So you finding some opportunities there in terms of people's minds opening or not? We're not there yet.
2: Some of that. Some of that. But recognize that I'm typically brought in by organizations. Yeah. And, And so there's there's not a lot of individual work. I certainly have had people who are in transition and they they recognize that, you know, got out of that, didn't plan to leave, but glad I'm out. And I don't want to rinse and repeat. No question. I worked with a person a few years ago who had been really coddled in this almost boutique environment. And they had a very big flowery title. And then the owner of the, or it was a small organization, but the owner decided that he was done with that and he wanted to move on and do other things, which left this person looking for a new opportunity. The reality is was that the skills that they had developed that were really specific to that organization were not marketable. It had nothing to do with the larger employment environment. Okay, because they were doing things on such a small scale and they were all these workarounds and things like that. And I'm really sanitizing this to protect the privacy thing. Sure, with, I got but, it. but but the point, and so that's an example of of what can happen when you're really not intentional about keeping the tune-ups, if you will, and doing the things that you need to do to to, to maintain relevance and and competitiveness. And so, you know, those are one of the areas that tend to be the focus when someone is in transition.
1: So I'll ask this question gently because I don't want to fill the answer, but I'm curious in your work, do you see some fundamental differences that seem to keep coming up over and over again between men and women?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. The women are reticent about really pulling the levers that they have available to them, you know,
1: waiting for permission,
2: waiting for permission, waiting for recognition, all of that, you know, and the guys are just get out of the way. I'm coming through the forest, coming through the door, whether I should be or not. (laughs) Right. I read about it. Sure, I can figure it out. You know, (laughs) women are just so coy about, oh, no, I'm not sure. That is the thing. And so I really try to and I I have had the pleasure and, and the privilege of working with a lot of smart, knock it out of the park women who just feel like for whatever reason, they're impacted by some kind of imposter syndrome. And they're not imposters at all, but they've been judged, you know, and they've been marginalized and they've been made to feel less than and they believe it, they're buying into it. And I come and I'm just trying to pull them out. I'm like, no, come on, you gotta do this
1: right Well, now. I think so much of it is cultural, right? If you listen to little girls talk and then there's a, an age when they start to repeat the things that we all know should change. So I don't, I can't, I don't know where that barrier is but it's a interesting transition and, a, and hopefully when we can interrupt more going forward. So I've, I'm interested to hear you say that you still see that because I still think that's a big part of our culture.
2: And I will say to you that that transcends cultures because all of the people who really? experience that with are not Americans. No, it does. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. You know.
1: And so a lot of, you know, you went out on your own and a lot of people, you clearly have material success, but many people make money the reason that they can't go out on their own, even though it's something they really are dying to do. What would you tell women paralyzed by a lack of capital?
2: Work with what you have. And particularly, you talked about, we touched on technology earlier, there is so much that you can do now, you know, with access to technology, much of it free, (laughs) okay, don't let that be a barrier.
1: I I agree, yeah. We always call ourselves two women in a lot of technology. Compared to 30 years ago, it's a completely different world, and I would expect it to be a completely different world 30 years from now.
2: Game changer, game changer, yeah.
1: Well, we think many, if not most, conversations eventually lead back to money and its impact. If, if if you do this thought experiment where you just eavesdrop for the next few days, it's just kind of amazing how many conversations come back around to some idea around money. When did you first become aware of money in your life? And do you wish you'd been taught money differently? Or were you taught money growing up?
2: I grew up in the 60s, working class parents who in the sixties as, as a black family, you know, really just wanted to push through and there were certain values and goals that my parents had, which they achieved. I mean, you know, to own their own home, you know, we lived in two different homes that we owned as I was growing up, but there wasn't much beyond that. It was always, you know, just keeping it together, very much working class. And I am very grateful and appreciative for everything that they did Where they found this child, and I have a sister who's 10 years my senior, so we didn't really grow up together. Where they found this ambitious child that (laughs) wanted to do all these other things, I don't know. So I was always kind of reaching beyond and reaching out. And so I didn't really, I had a sense of saving, but not so much investing and things like that, and just no real sense of value. Those things weren't really available to us. When I think about the Barbie dolls that I had and the, the metal lunch boxes and the things that ended up going in the trash, you know, my goodness, should have held on to those things, right? But just didn't have a sense of, of, of value, wasn't really exposed to that. So when I talk about that first job with mobile, when I graduated from college in 1979.
1: Same here as me. Okay.
2: <laughs> you know, I don't know if you, where you were, there was always, um, there was a benchmark for, for starting salary and everybody was going for about $15,000, $16,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Well, when Mobile Oil offered me $18,000. Starting salary. It was like Jackie on <laughs> I am, right? I, just, I thought I had made it. And so that was, you know, the first time that I, that I really felt that I was on my way to kind of financial security forever. Right. But the mistake I, I feel I made was that I was too focused on the dollars. You know, yes, I knew that I had school loans to pay back and I had just bought a car and I would But I was too focused on the money and not focused on the opportunity, which is why, you know, after a few years there, I realized this isn't this doesn't fit. Right. And so I should have been more focused on the work and the, you know, the opportunity. But everything was kind of following the money then. And so that was the first time that I really started to to think about what my financial future needed to look like.
1: Interesting. And I think everybody's story is slightly different there, but there is so much commonality in terms of it doesn't happen until you're an adult. And that's something else, you know, we'd love to change is get little girls thinking about money. It's not a bad subject and just a tool, doesn't know or care who owns it. So Thanks for sharing that. So I have one last kind of off the wall question because you're a Virginia transplant and I'm a Virginia transplant, but I've traveled very little, but as little as I've traveled, I think we live in kind of France and Italy out here in in the part of the county where we are. It's beautiful. Are you going to stay in Virginia until you're all done or in terms of retirement or you think you'll move on to, is there another place you love?
2: You know, that's an interesting question. Because we have thought about where we wanted to go when we grew up, (laughs) Uh and we can't come up with anything. We've spent, over the years, we've spent a lot of time investigating the west coast of Florida. Uh, Years and years ago, when we first got married, and that'll be 34 years here soon. Congratulations. Thank you. Jim has always wanted to live, at the time he wanted to be in California. I said, I'm not going to California because the earth moves, okay? Just not doing it. And so we never moved to California. Ironically, my stepson, daughter-in-law and our grandchildren have lived in San Jose for 9 years and they will probably be there for the foreseeable future because of his job. So we go back and forth to northern California typically a couple times a year, you know, and then I get the heck out, but but you know, we have not come up with another place that would really serve us at this point, as Northern Virginia and this immediate Loudoun area does.
1: It's a really beautiful place. I mean, I've been surprised how much I like it because I have lived all over and I really like it.
2: Yeah, no. And we used to, early in our marriage, we lived closer in Virginia. And it's so funny. I tell this story, he won't mind, but when we met, I had just come to this area, and I was in D.C., and we met in D.C., and he asked me where I lived. I said, well, I'm in the process, I think, of moving to Virginia. He said, well, when will you be back in D.C.? Because I don't go to Virginia. And so- it's so D.C. Right. So long story short, we've lived in Virginia the the whole time. We've never lived anyplace else. But we used to really, you know, we lived closer in, and, and we used to really give people a hard time who lived in Reston and Chantilly. How could you? And then 20 years ago, we moved to Ashburn, so-
1: Really far out, yeah. Really
2: far out, but I love it. I really like it. I like what's developed around us and I plan to be here for the duration.
1: Good, I'm glad. Well, thank you, Brenda, for your time, your insights and your wisdom.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I've really have enjoyed our conversation.
1: We wish you continued happiness, great health and success. If you'd like to learn more about Brenda and the work she's doing, go to adaptiveleadershipstrategies.com. That's adaptiveleadershipstrategies.com. Thanks, Brenda. Thank you.
0: This podcast and any related material is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only, and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or other professional advice. For professional advice in any realm, contact the appropriate professional. We assume no representation or warranty, express or implied, for accuracy or completeness of content. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the podcast, and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Links to external websites are provided solely for your convenience. We accept no responsibility for any linked sites or their contents. Use of this podcast and its content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.